Well, would you please open in your Bibles to John chapter 4 as we continue our series in the seven signs the book of John. John chapter 4, we're going to be looking at the last portion of this chapter today. It has been said that human beings can live for 40 days without food, for four days without water, four minutes without air, but that we cannot live for four seconds without hope. Now that may be a stretch on the actual time, but the point is clear enough. Life is hard. And we need hope if we are to carry on in this life. And as a result of the need for hope, what we do is we place faith in things that we believe will give us hope. Everybody does this. Everybody, everybody here this morning, everybody in this world places their trust in something that they believe will give them hope. Maybe simply hope for today or the week or to get through, but faith in something, trust in something that will give them hope. Everybody. The question is, what is your faith in? Not that you have faith. We all have some kind of faith. But what is your faith in? And is the thing that you are trusting in, does it give lasting hope? Does it give living hope? Many in our modern world today have placed trust in various technologies. I read an op-ed on Steve Jobs not long after he died, back in 2011, and I re-looked at that article this week, and this is what the writer said about Steve Jobs. Of all of his qualities, he said his most singular quality was his ability to articulate a perfectly secular form of hope. This is exemplified in the early logo for Apple computers. Many of you that are old enough will remember the early logo. It was not simply a picture of an apple that had a bite out of it, but that apple with a bite out of it had a rainbow that was placed right on top of it. Right on top of the archetype of human fallenness and human failure. The bitten fruit turned into a sign, a sign of promise, a sign of progress, technology that promised to make our life in this fallen world just a little bit easier. Many technologies today, especially medical technologies, they promise a reverse of the curse, in a sense. In healing of diseases through medical technologies, of preventing death through these technologies. And we should be thankful for these things. These are good. And yet, none of them, not your iPhone, Not the greatest medical technologies are effective at all in reversing the curse completely. They offer only temporal hope 
not a lasting hope, not a living hope. In our passage this morning, it's not about technology, but there's something similar going on in this passage. As the people in Galilee encounter Jesus, they have faith in Him, but it is only faith that He can do miracles. That He can do things that in a sense reverse the curse. That He can bring healing to sick bodies. That He can prevent death. And He was able to do all of these things. But if you've been here over the last few weeks, we've realized that these miracles are signs in the Gospel of John. And the signs are meant to point beyond themselves not simply to the fact that Jesus can turn water to wine or that he can heal an official son as we'll see in our passage this morning but that in doing those things there are lessons there about who he is and what he came to accomplish and who is he he is more than a miracle worker he is more than a great teacher he is the Christ the son of God and he is much more than able, that he came for a much bigger purpose than simply to heal people who were sick. He came to give life, eternal life, in his name. Some in the Gospel of John, it's not this neat and tidy, but generally you will see people you'll see people who reject Jesus altogether but then you'll see a group of two groups of believers one who have what one theologian calls signs only faith signs only faith they believe that Jesus can do these miraculous things they've heard about it they believe it they come to him hoping that they'll do the same thing for them But as John is so keen to show us, this is not sufficient faith. It is not saving faith. Friends, it is not enough to simply know that God is able to get you out of the pickle that you are in or even out of the desperate situation that you are in. If you believe in God at all, surely you believe that He is able as God to do miraculous things. But this type of faith is insufficient. It is not saving faith. The second group in the Gospel of John are those who have saving faith. Faith that sees that the problem that faces us in this world is bigger than the problems that are in front of us every day. It's an understanding that our biggest issue in life is we are sinners before a holy God condemned to eternal death and the wrath of God apart from Jesus Christ and Him alone. He alone is able to forgive us our sins through His work on the cross and to give us eternal life. Signs faith and saving faith. What we will see this morning, here's my main argument, only saving faith gives living Only saving faith in Jesus gives living hope. I hope to make this clear from the text this morning. Before we read it, 
I want you to notice, I've already alluded to it, but I want you to notice in this passage, it's a story. And as a story, it's going to have a setting. It's going to have a conflict or a crisis. There's going to be a climax. There's going to be a resolution to the original climax. But what I want you to notice is that the crisis, there's not only one crisis in this passage. There are two major problems. The obvious problem of this official son who is ill and at the point of death, a real problem, an obvious problem. But actually the bigger problem is signs only faith. And we are meant to see that that is the bigger problem. So as you listen to this story being read, listen for those two problems and listen to how both problems are resolved. Would you please stand? We'll begin reading in verse 43 all the way through the end of the chapter. This is coming right on the heels of Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman and her coming to faith in Christ. We read that after the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me reiterate my main argument this morning, my main sermon in a sentence, that only saving faith gives living hope. To develop or establish this argument, I'm going to start with the setting of the story in verses 43 to 46. It's an extended setup for the story, which shows us something about the signs only faith that we spoke of earlier. Then we'll dive into the story proper in verses 47 to 53. And after we walk through that, we'll reflect on what this story teaches us about who Jesus is, what he came to do, and get two reasons why saving faith in Christ alone can give us living hope. So let's begin with the setting of the story. 
that shows us that signs-only faith is insufficient. I want you to notice something in the setup of this story in verses 43 to 46. I want you to listen for something, I guess I should say. Listen for a repeated word. Look at verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. Now down in verse 45. So when he had come to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And then look at the last verse in the passage. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The first is back in chapter 2, verse 1. Notice the parallel nature of these two signs. John 2, 1, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And notice how that story ends as well. Verse 11, this was the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So the first sign in John is at Cana in Galilee. This sign that we have in our passage is also a sign that happens at Cana in Galilee. It's not the second sign in the book of John. It's the second sign that was done at Cana in Galilee. Why is John so intent on establishing this is taking place in Galilee? Well, there are two reasons that I found in my study. The one I don't have time to discuss. You can ask me about it if you're interested. But I'll give you the most obvious reason. And it is simply to set up a contrast between what just happened outside of Galilee, what just happened in the previous story in Samaria, with the most unlikely of people, a Samaritan woman. Jews and Samaritans despise one another, yet Jesus initiates with this woman and through His words, she comes to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Then she leads others in that town to come to believe the same thing. That happened in Samaria among a group that were not Jesus' people. But now Jesus comes into Galilee. He comes to His own. How will they respond to Jesus? And we get a clue at how they will respond in verse 44, where John offers one of his classic editorial comments before we even launch in the story. Why did Jesus come to Cana in Galilee? For he himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. A more literal translation of that word hometown would be homeland. It's not speaking of Nazareth, where he grew up. It's speaking of Cana where he's from, I mean, uh, of Galilee, more generally, all of this area of Galilee. He comes to his own. 
The setting is setting us up for the main problem in this story, which will also be the main problem in all of chapters 2 through chapter 12. The main problem is that the people in Galilee largely have signs-only faith. So while we're told in verse 45 that the Galileans welcomed him, this is an ironic use of the word welcome. Why did they welcome him? We're told in verse 45, because they saw the signs and the wonders that he did back in Jerusalem. They were there. They've come back to Galilee and Jesus is now back. So they welcome him. They've seen these miraculous things that he can do. They want him to do more of that kind of thing. But this is signs only faith. Now, why do I say that? You may be thinking, you should be thinking. Is he just making stuff up from the text? Where does he get that from John? Well, turn back over to John chapter 2 in verses 23 to 25. This is right after the signs he did in Jerusalem. Not just the cleansing of the temple, but John seems to allude that there were other signs that took place that are not recorded here. And after he does all of that, we are told in verse 23 that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Sounds like a good conclusion, right? But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. There's a play on words in the Greek. They believed when they saw the signs, but Jesus didn't believe them. They trusted in him when they saw the signs, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all men. He knew what was inside of all men. He knew that this was not saving faith. This was signs only faith. Faith that believes that Jesus can get me out of the mess that's right in front of me, but faith that doesn't see what the signs signify and the bigger reality that they are pointing to. So they welcome him, but not because they're true believers. It's because of what they thought they could get from him. Have you ever had an old friend you haven't seen in a while call you up, invite you to lunch? You're excited. What an opportunity to catch up. And then when you show up, to the restaurant, they welcome you so so graciously, so enthusiastically. They give you a hug. They say, have a seat. The waiter comes up to the table and they say, it'll, it'll be one check today. They're excited to see you, or so you thought. Ten minutes into the conversation, you see all they want to do is sell you something. They're not really there for you and who you are as their friend, they're there for what they can get from you. They welcome you to see what they can get from you. I think that's what's going on with the Galileans here in this passage. Not because they believe in Him. Not because they understand what the signs signify, but because of what He can do for them. Friends, the problem that this passage addresses is not faith. Everybody here has faith. Everyone believes in something. Remember what we said at the beginning? We need hope. 
We can't live four seconds without hope. And so we must trust in something to give us that hope. The issue is not faith. It's the object of faith. It's what we believe in. And what we see here, interestingly, is that these people believe in Jesus, but they don't believe the thing that they are meant to believe. It's signs only faith. It is not saving faith. Let me just put this very simply. To have living hope, you have to believe something very specific about Jesus. A lot of people believe that Jesus lived on this earth, that he was a good teacher, that he did miracles, even that he died, some maybe even that he believed. My guess is most of you here believe all of that stuff that I have just said. But saving faith requires believing something very specific about who Jesus is and what He came to do. We'll get to what that is. But for now, it's simply enough to say that signs faith is not sufficient. Saving faith trusts what the signs point to and only that can give us living hope. So let's move now from the setting this big problem that's been introduced into the story itself where that big problem will continue, but we'll also see how Jesus addresses the presenting problem, the obvious problem, which is this second sign in Cana of Galilee. And as we look at what that sign signifies, we'll come to see those two reasons why only saving faith gives living hope. So look at verse 46 we see the obvious problem. At Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And the situation is desperate. As verse 47 tells us, this son was at the point of death. And so, the official is also desperate. I want you to think about the level of desperation that this man is in. He is an official. That means he's in authority. He likely works for Herod. This man is a man who is privileged. He is a man who has access to resources, who has access and likely himself is a wealthy man, but he has come to the end of the rope. He has learned what many people have to learn the hard way, that it doesn't matter how much power, how much money you have, none of those things will provide lasting hope. And so he says to Jesus, come, heal my son. I know what you've done. I've heard about what you've done. I know you can do it. Come and heal my son. How does Jesus respond to this desperate man in this desperate situation? You may be surprised. It's a bit insensitive. Don't we get that all the time? It's like, oh, I'm in this mess and that's how you're going to respond to me? You're going to throw a Bible verse at me? Well, Jesus is doing something like that in verse 48. Heal my son! Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. 
little insensitive. It's actually the most compassionate thing that Jesus could have said. Kent Hughes says it is surgically merciful because Jesus sees this man's bigger problem that he has a signs-only faith. He needs to move to saving faith. And so he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You need to know something about this verse. This statement is not only addressed to this official, the you there, unless you is in the plural. It's addressed to the Galileans who had welcomed him as well. It is addressed to you and me as readers as well. Jesus is in his compassion inviting all of us to move beyond simply believing that Jesus can do miraculous things to seeing who he is and what he came to accomplish. This man's initial response to Jesus' words simply intensify his sense of desperation. He says, Sir, come down before my child dies. He's no longer referring to him as his son. He's referring to him as his little child, his precious one. Come, he says, he's dying. I don't need a lecture right now. The turning point of the story comes in verse 50. Jesus says, Go, your son will live. That's the key verse. Go, your son will live. He's been asking him to come down. He's showing him, I don't have to go there. I can get this thing done from right here. How does the man respond? We're told in the back half of verse 50 that he believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. Now this may not seem like a remarkable response. It may actually seem like nothing has changed, that this man is still holding on to signs only faith, but there's a clue that he has moved to saving faith or at least that he is moving to saving faith. Because the language used here that he believed the word that Jesus spoke to him is the same language used in the contrasting passage just right before this where the Samaritans come to believe the word. Verse 41. Not because of any signs they had seen. They hadn't seen any signs in Samaria. But because of the word. And this man has yet to see a sign either, but we're told that he takes Jesus at his word and leaves. There's other indications in the story that this man is making way towards saving faith if he doesn't have it already. We're told that as he makes his way back to Capernaum, his servants meet him along the way and tell him that his son is recovering. I mean, as readers, we should say that's the resolution to the problem in the passage. I mean, this man, you would think, we are told, he jumps for joy. He's out of his boots. He's falling over backwards. 
But notice in verse 51, that is not what we're told he does. In verse 52, excuse me, excuse me. The first thing that he does is he asks a follow-up question. He wants to know when was the hour he began to get better. And they say it was yesterday. One o'clock in the afternoon. Seventh hour that the fever left him. And the author tells us he knew that was the hour when Jesus had spoke the word, your son will live. This man is keen, intent on knowing if what Jesus said is true, even more than we see him being ecstatic about his son. Then we are told that he himself believed and that all his households believe. Just imagine the picture in your mind. His son's getting better. He hears when he's getting better. And he begins to tell some of the people in his household, his servants, let me tell you about how this whole thing went down back in Cana, about what Jesus did, about what Jesus said. You should believe too. And then he gets home. And his son who has recovered, he tells him too. And the son who is now healed has come to believe in Jesus. In exactly the same way that the Samaritan woman who came to believe and went to tell her people and they too came to believe. This was, we're told in verse 54, the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is meant to make us pause as readers, I think. To take stock. Where do we stand? What do we understand about what this sign and the other signs were pointing to? And do we believe, not just that Jesus can do miraculous things, But do we believe what the sign is meant to teach us about who He is and what He came to do? Well, what does this sign signify? What does it signify about Jesus? And how does faith in what this sign signifies give us living hope? Two things that I want to close with. The first... The first thing this sign teaches us is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So the statement, keep this statement in your mind. Your son will live. What does he mean by that word live? Well, it's interesting to note the second sign that Jesus did in Cana in Galilee is parallel with the first sign that Jesus did in Cana in Galilee, turning the water into wine. What did Jordan teach us in that first sermon? That in Jesus, the promise of Isaiah 25 is going to be fulfilled. What did Isaiah 25 teach us? That in the Messianic age, that wine would flow that there would be much much feasting, that there would be much celebration in the Messianic age. Jesus has inaugurated the Messianic age. When he returns again, we will sit down at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Well, we're going to see the second part of Isaiah 25 
in our passage in this second sign at Cana in Galilee. You may remember my sermon from Christmas Eve morning. What is at the center of Isaiah 25? Not only eating, feasting in the Messianic kingdom, but we are told that he will swallow up death forever. Do you see? The Messianic age has come in Jesus. We will feast. But also, in the resurrection, when Christ returns, death will be swallowed up forever. That's what you're meant to see in this sign. Why do I know that that's true? In the very next passage, chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus says, As the Father raises the dead and gives life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Why else do I know this? Because the seventh sign in this book of signs in John 1, 2-12, it's what? It's the raising of Lazarus. And what does Jesus say? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you see the wedding? What it signifies? Do you see what this action that Jesus did that saved a family from a premature funeral? What it signifies? Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Now, the obvious question on anybody's mind at this point, for some of you, it's been on your mind since I read the passage. Why didn't Jesus heal my son? Why did Jesus let my loved one die prematurely? Was it because I didn't have the right kind of faith? I didn't have enough faith? That is not what this is meant to teach at all. While Jesus is able to heal people in this life, He did so with this boy. This healing in this passage is meant to point beyond that particular healing. This boy eventually died. Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, he eventually died. But both of these people, this boy, Lazarus, they stand as a sign in real time and in real history of what is coming for all who have faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that He is the resurrection, that He is the life, eternal healing, eternal resurrection life. That's better than a signs-only faith that Jesus can get you out of the situation, the desperate situation that you are in today. It gives us a greater hope. These signs point to that. Jesus' own resurrection from the dead guarantees that all who are in Christ 
will be raised on the last day. This is the only way to have lasting and living hope. The second thing that this sign teaches us is that Jesus came not only to give resurrection life in the future, but eternal life now in the present. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and life to the fullest. That's not simply quantitative life. It's a qualitatively different kind of life. If we are in Christ, remember how I started out, He came to His own. His own did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of the will of man or of the will of flesh, but born of God, born from above, reborn, new life, a qualitatively different kind of life. What does Jesus say? This is life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We're not simply talking about length of days. We are talking about new life, abundant life that comes through faith in Christ. That He is not only the Son of God, He actually is God and was sent by God so that we might know Him and know Him personally. Jesus is able, very able, to deal with the temporal problems in our life. Let's pray that He does. But He has not promised to do so. But what He has promised is that He has decisively in Christ dealt with the last enemy, which is death. And that He will give new life to all who have faith in Him. So things may not be right for you today. I'm not glazing over any of that. I'm here today to say that through faith in Christ, you have a living hope that things will in fact surely and securely be right one day on the day when Christ returns. So how should you respond to this passage this morning? I think the man in this story gives us a picture of what our posture should be. The man in this story comes to Jesus desperate. He's desperate about a situation that is right in front of him. He has signs only faith at that point in the story. He moves to saving faith eventually. But that desperation for his temporal physical needs of his son is the same posture that we need to have before God as we think of our eternal state. As we think of our sin before a holy God and the judgment that will befall all who are not in Christ. We should come before God desperate saying, will you heal me? my sin-sick heart? Will you forgive me? Will you give me new life and hope right now of resurrection life 
in the future. This man believed because of the Word. We don't have signs and wonders to go on. In fact, if we go on those things to put our trust in, what happens when they're not there? What happens when the bottom falls out and God doesn't answer our prayer? Our faith often goes with it. But if we have saving faith that looks beyond the signs to who Christ is and what Christ has done, we can have secure, lasting, living hope. So I invite you today to place your trust in Jesus. If you've been running from God, running from Jesus, to trust in Him today, but for the rest of you as well, to look beyond what's in front of you to the great promises that we have in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we need eyes to see, ears to hear. We can't just muster up faith. We know it is a gift from you. Our eyes must be open. We must be given new life, new birth. You, the Father, must draw us to the Son. And so we pray that you would work in power to do that very thing this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.